We'll hear re-argument this morning in Hudson versus Michigan. Mr. Moran. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For centuries, the knock-and-announce rule has been a core part of the right of the people to be secure in their houses from unreasonable searches and seizures. It reflects the notion that when the government has the right to enter a house, whether to perform an arrest, to search for evidence, or to seize goods, that the people should have the right to answer the door in a dignified manner, except in an emergency, and to avoid the unnecessarily gratuitous uh, uh, embarrassment and shock that often follows a precipitous police entry. So wouldn't it be more accurate to say that it's protected the right to be free from unreasonable entry as opposed to unreasonable search and seizure? Well, this Court has recognized in Wilson, consistent with the common law authorities, Mr. Chief Justice, that they are connected, that the entry it directly affects the reasonableness of the search and seizure that occurs within. And that's why this Court, in Miller and in Sabbath, suppressed the evidence following knock-and-announce violations. But in Wilson, this Court directly stated that the common law, the Fourth Amendment, com- the common law that informs the Fourth Amendment, directly demonstrates that the framers thought that the method of entry uh, directly affects whether a search or seizure inside a home is reasonable. So, so in your view, there has to be a four- to six-hour search for complex financial records, business documents. There's a warrant. The search is otherwise proper. They forget to knock. They say, oh, you know, we are police officers. There's a discussion for a while. Uh, but and anything seized after that is, must be suppressed. If there is — It just seems to me that uh, in the hypothetical I put, and it's obviously the reason I put it, uh, is that there's just no causal link between uh, the, the suppression and, and the failure to knock. Uh, Your Honor, the, the evidence inside, the evidence is seized inside, the seizure of the evidence inside, is directly related to the manner of entry. Just as there's a direct causal link between when the officers come in without a warrant, when they should have gotten a warrant first, they thought there was an exigency. Well, but you say directly related. That, that assumes the very point that I have in mind. I don't know why it's directly related. Well, going back to Wilson, this Court said uh, in Wilson, if I might quote from Wilson, that uh, the, freight, the, the common law of search and seizure leaves no doubt that the reasonableness of a search of a dwelling may depend in part on whether law enforcement officers announce their presence and authority prior to entering. Depends in part. <laughs> it depends in part. Certainly, there are other factors as well, but the reasonableness of the search uh, depends in part. The issue. Uh, so, what what do you do with our opinion uh, in, in 1986 in Segura versus United States, which seems to me to contradict your assertion that you cannot separate, for purposes of the exclusionary rule, the manner of entry from the search. In that case, the, uh, the policeman entered without a search warrant. So the entry was clearly a violation. Uh, they left two officers in the room, and other officers went back and got a search warrant. When they returned with a search warrant, the two officers who were in the room proceeded to do a search, and we admitted the evidence. It seems to me that in that case, we, we, we did succeed in, in separating the, uh, the entry from the subsequent search. And I don't know why, why we can't do the same thing here. Because there were exceptional circumstances, Justice Scalia. What, what were the exceptional circumstances? A 19-hour delay and a warrant that was obtained that had nothing to do with the initial entry, that was in no way dependent on the initial entry. Worse still, it would seem to me. I don't know. The warrant wasn't dependent on the initial entry. You could also say the initial entry wasn't uh, the product of the, uh, of the later warrant. The initial entry was not the product of the okay. later warrant. But once this Court ruled And therefore it was unlawful. That's right. The, but the initial entry hold, was unlawful. But we didn't hold that. Well, the, but this, the government in Segura never contested the fact that the evidence that was seen and seized during the initial entry should be suppressed. And that's all we're asking for here. Uh, excuse me? No, no, I don't understand that. Uh, when the officers went in initially in Segura, some evidence was seen and seized at that time, and the government did not contest right. that evidence should not. Well, I'm talking about only the evidence that, uh, that was the product of the search conducted after the warrant was delivered. That's right. And that evidence was admitted in. Right. But the ev- Even though the entry of those officers was an unlawful entry. The entry, the initial entry was an unlawful entry. When they came back with the warrant. No, no, no. The, 
th there was no subsequent entry. Well, you said the initial entry was unlawful. Those officers stayed there. Their presence there was the product of an unlawful entry. Their presence it, was, yes. Their presence was the product of an unlawful entry, and nonetheless, we admitted in the, uh, the material that they obtained in the search after a warrant had been I, I read Segura as saying that the presence, the later presence of the warrant, which was in no way tainted by the initial entry, made the uh, officer's presence in the home retroactively lawful from that point. It was unlawful until that point, which is why the government did not contest the, the point that all the evidence that was seized during the initial entry up to the point when the warrant was issued had to be suppressed. That's all we're asking for here. I can imagine hypotheticals in which you have a knock-and-announce violation and then something happens like in Segura or like in Murray, where you have later action that creates an independent source. But in your typical so suppose, the officer, suppose the officer, excuse me, we forgot to knock, but we are police officers. We do have a warrant. We're going to proceed with a search. Please don't be alarmed. We're going to do that do it? That might do it. Uh, that would be a different case than the case we have Well, here. but your, your point is, is that, is that they have to go out and come back in again. You would have to create some sort of analog analogy to Murray and Segura. Uh, Murray and Segura are exceptional cases. There are very rare cases when the government breaks in and then realizes we shouldn't have done that. We should go. I, I agree. Segura is just, I forget what it is in terms of it's kind of a supervening independent cause or something. Yes. Like that. Yes. And, and you can have, imagine such hypotheticals uh, in the knock and announce context. And in the Moreno case in the Ninth Circuit, you have one where you have a knock and announce violation committed in the outer door. No evidence is found in the outer door. But then the officers properly knock and announce at the inner door, and the court in the Ninth Circuit held that that was proper to seize that. We have no problem with that. that. That seems like a proper result, because ultimately the purposes of the knock and announce rule were vindicated uh, when the officers knocked and announced at the inner door before, before forcing entry. Mr. Morant, how, how long do you think the officers had to wait before they could have entered? In this case? Yes. Uh, from banks, somewhere closer to 15 seconds, 15 to 20 seconds was considered. What would, if they had done that, what would have been different from what happened in this case? Mr. Hudson presumably would have gotten up from his chair, would have come to the door, would have admitted the officers, and then after. Why do you presume that? Someone sitting in a chair with gun, with the gun and the drugs, you say, would have gotten up and said, oh, it's the police, let's see what they want? We, we, we presume that people act lawfully in response to commands from the police. We do not presume that people will act unlawfully. If the police have evidence, or information that someone will, in fact, act unlawfully by trying to dispose the evidence. Or Isn't a good sign of what might have happened, what actually happened when the police came in, which was there was an effort to hide the evidence? Uh, the, the record does not disclose any effort on Mr. Hudson's part to hide any evidence, Your Honor. I thought, where, where were the drugs found? Uh, the rocks of crack cocaine for which he was convicted were found in his left front pants pocket. Where was the gun found? The gun was uh, in the chair. In the chair? In the chair. There was no evidence that there was any secreting of evidence in this case. Is there any reason to suppose that if the officers had waited 15 seconds instead of the three to four, that they wouldn't have found the same evidence? It's always possible, Your Honor, but we don't presume that. Just as in Segura, uh, the court said. But the only we, the only reason they wouldn't have found the same evidence, I take it, is if they if the defendants had had additional time to dispose of it. We don't contest that they would have found the same evidence. No. We do not argue that Mr. Hudson or any of the other people in the House would have destroyed the evidence. We certainly is, don't make that argument. Is, is in the chair the same thing as on the chair? I, I mean, something's in the chair. Did it, they stuff, it, it, stuff it in the cushion or what? I, it's not really clear from the record, Justice Scalia. Yeah, so it's I, in, I, in the chair. I think it's pretty clear you don't talk of something as being in the chair. It's on the chair unless you stuff it in the chair. I assume he stuffed it behind a pillow or something. I'm not completely clear exactly where it, in the chair it was. English is English. He said it was in the chair. In the chair. Okay. Forty-nine of the 50 states currently suppress evidence following knock-and-announce violations, just as this Court did in, in uh, Miller and Sabbath. What do you think is the standard for determining what sort of causal connection there has to be in order to have suppression here? We go back to the Wong Sun Fruits Test. Is the evidence that was recovered the direct fruit of the violation? In other words, is there a clear logical connection? Now, my opponent. What's the purpose of the causal connection requirement? What's uh, the reason for having it? Well, it's so, it's so that there is a, an obvious connection. Before the court takes the step of, of excluding evidence, there, there should be some connection, some clear connection between the violation and the evidence recovered. But my What's the reason for requiring a clear connection? Uh, 
I suppose that it's simply a matter of logic, that uh, evidence that's completely unrelated to a violation, nobody would think should be, should be excluded. Um, but evidence... Why? Uh, well, it's, it's unrelated. So if, for example, the uh, police break into my house and, and find evidence in, uh, find nothing in my house, they illegally break into my house, but then they, uh, they do a proper warrant search of my office and find evidence, I, I, don't, I don't see any connection between the illegal search of my house and the legal search of my office, assuming that it was not the fruit of the illegal but, search of my but office. But why? Isn't, isn't the reason just a, just a question of crafting uh, an appropriate a remedy for an appropriate deterrence yes. for violations. Exactly. It, the whole point is deterrence. And so uh, you wouldn't deter the officers who illegally broke into my house by excluding evidence from my office uh, if, if uh, it, might, it may even well be different. Sure you would. Sure you would. Well, it may well I mean, be you different. You deter it more if you fill the whole case out. But we don't do that. No, we don't. Yeah. We, we limit we, we insist that the deterrence somehow be related. We do. To the... And, and, and the related usually means that the acquisition of the evidence was the product of the violation. It was caused by the violation. And, and for that reason, we keep it out. And here, it's, it's hard to say that this was caused by the fact that they, that they entered in a, a few seconds too soon. So he would have answered the door. And they would have seen the stuff. What the knock-and-announce violation causes, Justice Scalia, is the officer to be illegally in the home. Going back to the common law authorities, the courts have long recognized, American courts have long recognized, that an officer who illegally enters a home, even with a valid writ or a valid piece of paper allowing him to be in the home, if the manner of entry is illegal, he is a trespasser. Uh, his entry is, is void ad, ab initio. And so in that sense, the entry is the cause of the illegal. Although you say it can be retroactively validated. Uh, uh, after Segura. Yeah, in Segura you can retroactively validate it by, by getting the warrant afterwards. Could it be, have been retroactively validated by knocking and announcing afterwards? I'm, so, I'm sorry, we came in too soon. And they run back to the door and they knock and announce and wait, wait ten seconds. Again, I, Would that do the job? I can see that it's possible that you can come up with a Segura-type hypothetical. Uh, I think the easiest one is the Moreno case from the wait, Ninth Circuit. Wait, the, the hypothetical sounds ridiculous only if one accepts your explanation of Segura, that, that it was somehow a retroactive validation. Well, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can, Justice well, why, why is it retroactive validation? I would have thought Segura in those cases are Silverthorne cases. It is. It's an All that it is, is there's an independent chain of events. It's an independent that source. independent chain of events that almost certainly would have led to the discovery of the evidence, despite, not without, despite the unlawful entry. And if that's so, all we have is a, is a set of cases where deterrence is most unlikely to play any significant role. Because no policeman could possibly count on that kind of thing, getting the evidence in. And, and that's exactly right. right. And, and, and the situation we have in Michigan now is that officers know to a certainty that if they violate the knock-and-announce rule, nothing will happen. And so that's why in all the other but, states — That's not true. There are cases where the violation of the knock-and-announce rule gives rise to evidence that may be admitted, and that would presumably be excluded if you can show that the seizure is related to the violation. The problem here is that the evidence uh, that is being suppressed, uh, as, as you've suggested, that there, there's no question that it would have been available if the officers had waited 15 seconds as opposed to four seconds. Mr. Chief Justice, none of the parties has been able to identify any cases in which you can point to evidence and say, this, is, this evidence was produced by the knock-and-announce violation, and nothing else The Solicitor General hypothesized one in the amicus brief. Said somebody, you know, they, they burst in and someone screams, you know, run away, it's the police. Uh, that excited utterance caused by the absence of a knock-and-announce would presumably be related to the violation and could be suppressed. That doesn't mean that the gun and the drugs that are found in the room is in the same category. If I may make two responses to that. First, the Solicitor General hypothesized such a case, but has not identified a single case where that's ever happened. Uh, it's purely hypothetical. But the second point is that excluding that evidence would have no deterrent effect whatsoever. Because by, by definition, that's evidence that the police would only get by committing the knock-and-announce violation. So the police lose nothing by risking the possibility that somebody will make an excited utterance and say, okay, we won't get to use that excited utterance, but we would never have gotten that excited utterance in the first place. That's not deterrence, Mr. Chief Justice. That's restitution. 
That's like saying that I can be deterred from stealing something by being told that if I'm caught, I'll have to give it back. What it is is recognizing that if there is a fruit of the illegal act, it is suppressed so that there is a cost to the illegal act. What it's saying is that not everything that happens after the illegal act is a fruit of the illegal act. I think your question, Mr. Chief Justice, really goes to the worst position language in Nix. And the point is, from our brief, is that this Court has placed the prosecution in the worst position than it would have been had the police acted lawfully dozens, possibly scores of time, times. Uh, all the cases in which the Court has noted that the police easily could have obtained a warrant. Most recently in Georgia v. Randolph, where this Court noted that there were two lawful methods for the police to get the cocaine, uh, the cocaine residue on the straw, but still suppress the evidence. The police and the prosecution do get placed in a worse position, and that's necessary for deterrence. What would it Nick- have been possible for these police to get a no-knock warrant? It might well have been. I I was asked this question last time, Justice Ginsburg, and I'd like to modify my answer. Uh, In Michigan, there is no statute governing no-knock warrants, and there are also no court decisions governing no-knock warrants. Uh, And there never will be under the People v. Stevens regime. One of the nice things that's happened uh, since Wilson v. Arkansas, in fact, before Wilson v. Arkansas in many states, is courts have developed, uh, developed procedures for police officers to get no-knock warrants, to go to the police and ask for a no-knock warrant. Well, what about in this case, which is Justice Ginsburg's question? If the police said, we have reasonable grounds to to believe that he has a weapon, and we're also looking for drugs that are easily disposable, uh, would that be grounds for uh, knocking, for not, for dispensing with a knock requirement? could, the, could a judge have issued such a warrant in Michigan? Is that your question? Well, let's take it step by step. Suppose the police articulate this at the outset. It, it could and well. And under, under state procedures, they're allowed to make the on-the-spot judgment. Would that would those facts suffice to allow them to enter without the knock? If they had specific information along those lines, that there, that there was evidence hidden in places or, or stored in places where it could easily be disposed. Is that correct? I thought in most states there had to be a statute that uh, authorizes a no-knock warrant. In most states. Most states do have such statutes, and we have this case because Michigan chooses to go on a, on a separate uh, path. Most states do have statutes, uh, but a few states by uh, court decision have allowed for the issuance of no-knock warrants. My point even, is- even if Michigan doesn't, I mean, that has nothing, as I understand it, that, that doesn't affect the, the answer to the federal question that we have. Because as I understand it, uh, we, we, can, we can take as good law that even with a warrant that does not have a no-knock authorization, if the police have a justification for going in without knocking, so far as the Fourth Amendment is concerned, the search is still good. That's Isn't right. that correct? Absolutely. So what we're really arguing is, uh, what is what is Michigan law on the subject? But the, the issue we've got is not Michigan law. That's right. And this case comes to us in the uh, posture of... This is a place, uh, a case in which the warrant was for drugs. Is that not so? It was. Well, so in, in this case, they could have entered, in your view? if they had specific knowledge of the gun and disposable contraband? Yes, after Banks uh, and, and Richards, uh, especially Richards, uh, if the police had reasonable suspicion that you had contraband in a position where it could be easily disposed, and if they had information about the weapons that could be used to resist the police entry, then yes, there could have been a, a legal no-knock entry. What about just the former without the latter? I thought the former alone would be enough. Uh, either would be. That's correct, Justice. Going back to my question, isn't it then a reasonable assumption based on the police experience in case after case, that where there, where narcotics are housed, there is often a gun, and there is ease of disposal. Couldn't the police simply say this is a narcotic search, and therefore we don't need to knock and announce because those circumstances will be present in most cases? No, because this Court unanimously foreclosed that argument in Richards v. Wisconsin by holding that there must be a particularized showing for the particular case. That particularized showing, I'll 
gladly concede it would be easier to make in a narcotics case than it would be in a, uh, in a, in a stolen property case. But it wasn't made in this case, and this case comes to this Court on the posture that the prosecution has conceded at every step of the way that that particularized showing was not made here and that, therefore, there was a knock-and-announce violation. I'm sorry, a particularized showing of what? That in this particular case, it's likely that the drugs would be in an easily disposable situation uh, and that the occupants would be armed and ready to resist the police entry. And there was no such showing made here. Uh, The prosecution didn't even attempt to make such a showing. I'm vaguely recalling cases from the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit that accepted a presumption that if there are drugs around, there are likely to be firearms around. Are you saying that that's inconsistent with the Richards decision? It, that might not be inconsistent, but then the, the, to follow that up with, therefore, you can do a no-knock entry automatically is inconsistent with the Richards decision. Uh, and the, I ask this question. As I understand, the prosecutor conceded a violation of the knock-and-announce yes. rule. And I'm just wondering, in Michigan, since there's no adverse effect to it, do the prosecutors routinely concede that there's a violation because there's no point in litigating it, I suppose? Well, I don't even think we get that far, Justice Stevens. Motions to suppress aren't filed. There's no point filing a motion to suppress except for the, the fact that this case is pending in this court. Yeah. There's no point for So that if the issue arises, you can assume the prosecutor will always say, yes, we'll assume there was a violation. There would be no reason reason not to assume that. That's right. And we'll never really litigate in Michigan how far they can go before they violate the rule. It's a dead letter in Michigan. Uh, I assume that lawsuits are allowable if if knock and announce is is not observed, and if you intrude upon someone in a state of undress, isn't a civil lawsuit uh, bringable? Michigan has a particularly vigorous uh, state uh, immunity statute that makes it effectively impossible to sue for a, a knock-and-announce violation. Uh, I have not found a single Michigan case in which anyone has successfully sued for a knock-and-announce violation. You can sue in federal court under Section 1983, but there you run into various doctrines, uh, especially including qualified immunity. I, I made the claim the first time, and it, it still hasn't been contradicted by my opponents. We've not been able to find any cases, published or unpublished, in which anyone has collected anything other than nominal damages anywhere in the United States. But those doctrines that you're talking about would be overridden on the hypothetical that you want us to be concerned about. In other words, you're saying if you don't suppress the evidence, there's going to be no incentive to comply with the law, so they're going to deliberately violate the law. Well, if they're deliberately violating the law, qualified immunity isn't going to help them very much. Um, Qualified immunity would still protect them to the extent that any reasonable officer could have thought that a a no-knock entry was valid. I cited a number of cases, for example, where innocent people have been shot uh, following entries into wrong doors, and qualified immunity has been granted to the officers. Wait a minute. The government is not arguing here that, that, that it's valid. It's just arguing that though it is invalid, the punishment for it should not be to let the criminal go. That's, that's all they're saying. That, that the is punishment right. for the invalidity should not be the, the uh, inadmissibility of all of the evidence of the crime that was found. That, well, that's quite different from saying that it's, uh, that it's valid. So I think they acknowledge that, that a lawsuit uh, against an officer who knowingly dispenses with, with knock and announce because, as you say, he says there's, there's no consequence. But there is a consequence. He can be sued. I assume in- And sometimes he may be going to the wrong house, and the person suing him may not be a criminal, but maybe some, some innocent, uh, uh, innocent bystander. And, and what about, uh, uh, you know, you say there's no incentive to knock and announce. Uh, there, there may be, you don't know any Michigan cases uh, in, in which uh, a civil suit has succeeded, but I, I know numerous cases in which police who, who burst in without knocking and announcing expose themselves to danger, that is, to uh, being shot at by a, by a householder who doesn't know that they are the police. Isn't that enough of, it, of an incentive, the fact that you may lose your life? No, Your Honor, because I think what some officers will do is exactly what Officer Good did in this case, which is shout, police, and then burst in immediately. So they'll do the announce part, which protects the police to some extent from being shot, but they will skip the rest of the knock-and-announce requirement, which is to wait some reasonable amount of time to allow the householder to make himself more dignified, to get to the door, to answer the door, to admit the police in a dignified manner. You raise the point that lots of innocent people are subject to search warrants. Uh, thousands of cases every year of, of people who 
didn't do anything. Uh, either I think you said that you thought the police here had to wait, what, 15 seconds? What was the figure you gave? Well, from Banks, uh, this Court ruled that 15 seconds, 15 to 20 seconds was an appropriate time for a drug search. And I suppose they waited 10 seconds, uh, and so there would be a, a constitutional violation. Why would suppression be appropriate in that situation? Why would it be in any way proportional to the, to the violation that occurred? Well, if it was 10 seconds, Justice Alito, uh, the government still might have an argument. 15 seconds was enough in banks. The court did not. Well, say wherever that. the line is, suppose they're just they're just slightly on the wrong side of the line. Uh, I think it's a practical matter that if the police are just very slightly on the wrong side of the line, the courts are not likely to hold that there was a knock and announce violation. But when you have a flagrant violation like then yes, you're con- you're contradicting the premise. Well, in a case like in, in a, if a court were to hold that the police did violate the knock-and-announce requirement by coming in, uh, by coming in by not giving the, the person a reasonable amount of time to come to the door or to make himself presentable, then yes, the evidence should be suppressed because those officers need to be deterred. The, the exclusionary rule is all about deterrence. And is there any method that will deter officers from violating the knock-and-announce requirement? other than excluding the evidence, by teaching them, through example, that next time you need to wait longer. You need to wait a reasonable amount of time for someone to come to the door unless you have facts suggesting that waiting a reasonable amount of time would defeat the purposes of the search. What about, uh, you talk about deterrence, what about they're not getting promoted? I assume that that, uh, police departments, even if you have some maverick uh, officers, that the administration of the police department uh, teaches them that they have to knock and announce. Or if it doesn't teach them that, then you do have a 1983 cause of action against the city, not just the officers. And that, you know, that's a deep pocket. Uh, I, I very seriously doubt officers such as Officer Good will not be promoted because of the violation that he committed Why? in a case Why? like this. You, you, you know, I'm the police commissioner, and I have a policy. You, you, you obey the law. You knock and announce. And, and I know that this particular officer disregards it all the time. You really think that's not going to go in his record? I, I do, Justice Scalia. And I, and I think it's inconsistent with MAP, which this Court recognized that other remedies had proven completely futile in enforcing the, the Fourth Amendment. MAP was a long time ago. It was before 1983 was being used, wasn't it? Uh, it was before 1983 was being used. But I don't think Section 1983 has changed the landscape here. I, I don't think MAP is ripe for overruling. And, in fact, the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, one of the amici for the other side, concedes that tort remedies cannot, uh, at this time, substitute for the exclusionary rule. If there are no other questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Moran. Uh, Mr. Boffman, we'll hear now from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice Robert Jackson uh, once said that when he was arguing cases before the Court, he always gave three arguments. The well-structured argument he rehearsed, the disjointed and confused argument he delivered to the Court, and the brilliant argument he thought of in the car on the way home. Uh, I have the rare opportunity to deliver the argument I thought of in the car on the way home. But I'm going to refrain, mindful of the fact that this is our, our second time through, and try to hone in on on what I think are some critical points. Uh, a search warrant, a judicial command, uh, must be obtained from a neutral and detached magistrate. It must particularly describe the place to be searched and the things to be seized, and it must be issued based on probable cause uh, drawn from information which is sworn to or affirmed, or affirmed. If these requirements are met, the privacy of the described premises will be invaded. And any privilege the occupants might have to withhold evidence or contraband from the police is abrogated. But that command must be executed in a reasonable fashion. And so the police may not bring third parties into the premises who are unnecessary to the execution of the warrant. They may not search in places where the items described may not be found. They may not cause unnecessary damage uh, to property. And they may not use force to accomplish the entry unless consent to enter is denied either explicitly or implicitly or unless entering immediately is reasonable under the circumstances to avoid the destruction of the evidence or harm to the officers. If no valid warrant exists in the first place, then, and no exception exists, then the privacy of the dwelling has been unlawfully invaded. It never should have happened. But if a valid warrant exists, and some error occurs in its execution, it is not the invasion of privacy which should not have occurred, 
um, that is commanded by the warrant. And you, you, you concede that there was error in execution here? Uh, you concede that there was a violation because, technically because the, there was no knock? Yes. Why do you concede that? You've got a case in which, uh, as I understand it, not only was the evidence but the warrant itself uh, an indication not only that drugs were present but that guns were present. Uh, it's perfectly true. We don't have a general rule that any time you do a drug search, uh, you can do a no-knock. Uh, but in this case, you had specific evidence that there were firearms there. And based on what I've seen in the case, I don't know why Michigan did not argue that, in fact, it was justified to go in with, without knocking. And I'll be candid to say you the, to tell you that the fact that Michigan does not make that argument suggests to me that Michigan is trying to structure a case in which it's going to have the best shot uh, to, to, to get the exclusionary rule uh, out of the way here. Why don't you claim that the search was lawful? Well, let me first say that this case was not structured to try to try to uh, to get it here um, on our on our part. I think initially the prosecutor handling the hearing here reached the conclusion that Richards um, precluded an argument that um, a no, uh, that the failure to knock and announce was justified here. Well, Richards precluded a general rule, but it didn't preclude you from arguing in a specific case, and it's the fact that the prosecutor, and hence all the way up the line to you, do not argue that uh, is is what I don't understand. Again, I I think it would be an interesting argument to revisit Richards on this proposition. I don't think we have to revisit Richards. I I think what, what what I'm concerned is that you don't make an argument based on the evidence in this case that you had probable cause to believe that there were going to be guns facing you when, when you went in the door, and therefore the knock was not required. Again, I, I think the, the belief of the prosecutors uh, as the case went forward was that because that belief, the, the, you are correct, guns were described as things to be seized in the warrant, the probable cause for that was not any specific knowledge about a gun in the house. It was the officer's general experience that when I execute search warrants for drugs, guns tend to be there. Richard seems to say, uh, at least it certainly could be argued, that's not sufficient. You can't make that decision based on experience that drugs and guns go together. Well, are you, you suggesting that did, did the warrant um, — I don't know this. I, I should, but I don't. Uh, did the warrant authorize seizure of guns as well as uh, yes, it did. drugs? Well, are you suggesting that the, 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 the gun portion of the authorization was, in fact, invalid? No, I, I don't, because I believe probable cause can be based on the experience of officers without okay. specific if, knowledge of so the. At, in, in any case, at, at the moment that you got the warrant, uh, you, you had, in fact, a, a finding by a trial court uh, or a, a, whoever the issuing magistrate was that there was probable cause to believe that you were going to uh, confront guns as well as drugs inside. And, and Richards does not seem to me to be a good reason uh, under those circumstances to concede that you didn't have a basis for, for dispensing with the knock. It, it may not have been a good reason, but it was the reason in that the, the prosecutors believed that the rejection of the drugs and guns always go together as a justifying not knocking and announcing in Richards meant that the, the determination in this case that guns were on the premises based on the officer's experience that drugs and guns go together, not any specific knowledge about a gun, was inadequate then to forgive knocking and announcing. That may have been a misjudgment, but it was a belief that Richards foreclosed that. It was not an attempt to set the case up. We had the Stevens case in Michigan. Well, well do you think, uh, just as an empirical matter, uh, that in most cases where there's known to be uh, guns plus drugs, the police uh, will enter without knocking? No, I, I, don't, I don't believe that's the case. I think if there's specific knowledge that there are guns in the premises, there, yes. There's specific, there's specific knowledge. Yes. If they knew, I think then they would enter without knocking. If, if the specific knowledge here. Well, no, it's knowledge based on experience. Well, you've got, you got a warrant and that warrant. said look for them. That's about as specific as you can get. I understand, but the facts in the affidavit justifying looking for guns was, was in my experience, drugs and guns go together. Well, but nevertheless, you, you have was it not there a good. finding that there was probable cause that there was a gun there? Yes. All right. I would be happy to, to, in a different case, make the argument that although Richard says a court cannot say that knock and announce is forgiven every time a drug warrant is executed on the theory that experience teaches that drugs and guns go together, I'd be happy to argue that that 
holding does not apply when a judge determines in issuing the warrant that drugs and guns go together, so I'm putting it in the warrant. I'd be happy to argue that case. At this time, Don't, don't argue it to me. It doesn't make much sense. <laughs> prosecutors believe that Richards couldn't be avoided by putting the drugs and guns go together into the warrant instead of um, a judge this, arguing it. May I ask this question about the practice in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Since the people against Stevens and people against Vasquez have been decided, have, are there any cases other than this one in which a prosecutor has raised the knock-and-announce argument that got litigated all the way to the appellate court? Yeah, there have been a handful of cases where defense attorneys have filed the motion despite people v. Stevens, and then they've, they have lost because of Stevens. So but there really is no incentive for the prosecutor to fight to argue about this anymore in Michigan, is it? No, not in the criminal case. The prosecutor's response will be, as it was in this case, although the judge refused well, to follow the there's a violation. There, there should be no hearing. They're not conceding the violation. They're simply saying the viol- a, a violation is irrelevant to the question of the admission of the evidence, so we should not litigate it. So there's no point in litigating exactly. it. Exactly. So it's a functional equivalent of conceding a violation in every case because there's simply no effective remedy. Well, assume no effective as, remedy in the litigation itself. In the criminal litigation. There was a possibility that the, the officer will be disciplined by his very zealous superior, I guess. Or, 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 or civil litigation. There is no, there is no uh, exclusion. Yes, that's correct. Do you, do you dispute your, your brother on the other side uh, said in his argument that he had not heard a dispute about this, but do you dispute his claim that there has never been any, uh, at least in recent history, any, any civil judgment actually rendered against anyone in the office's position? I, I am not aware of one from Michigan. I am aware that there have been civil judgments against officers from other jurisdictions. I'm not aware of one in Michigan. I know there, have, there are some suits that have been brought um, in the uh, Eastern District that are pending. And, and part of the difficulty is um, civil suits can be brought, they can be settled, there can even be trials and damages awarded, and they won't be in the reports. They're not in the Fed subs. They're not in the Fed. But we, we, don't, we don't have any indication that there's an effective deterrence then in civil suits. Well, Maybe there will be someday, but we haven't seen it yet in Michigan. I, I, I think one could also make the argument that that cuts the other way. The fact that there are not a lot of reported decisions may mean there's not a lot of violations going on, that the police are not routinely kicking down doors without knocking and announcing when they should, and that's why they're not being sued. They're and being it, sued. It, it may mean that uh, that potential plaintiffs say, if the courts are winking at this in the criminal case, uh, we don't have much chance of getting a, a, a verdict in a civil case. Well, it, it's we, not, we don't know, but that might be the case, too, might it, it? It might be, but it's not been my experience that either either the criminals or certainly innocent parties, people, probable cause, after all, doesn't mean certainty, people who have had damage done or physical injury occur have been shy, are shy about suing the government in those circumstances. I mean, is there any evidence that uh, the citizens, of, that Michiganders are less litigious than people in other states? It certainly hasn't been my experience and certainly not in my county. So, so the mere existence of suits in other states ought to suffice as some evidence still, that that's I, a deterrent, I, shouldn't it? I would, I would think so. I still don't understand where, where, where we are with guns. You, you have a specific finding in a warrant that there's a probable cause it's going to be a gun, and there's drugs. Uh, I take it your position is that this allows you to enter without knocking. <laughs> it would be my position. I would have thought, as the prosecutor thought here, that a probable cause finding that guns are in the house based not on any specific knowledge about guns, but based on experience in similar circumstances, would not sufficient to satisfy Richards in terms of not knocking. I would certainly make the argument that it ought to be, but I would have not uh, criticized the prosecutor who didn't make that argument. Why would you bother making the argument? The evidence can't be suppressed. I don't understand why why would there ever be any litigation over this issue in a criminal case? and I think Your Honor is correct. The prosecutor's point in this case can was you cite we shouldn't any, litigate. Any other example of a, a violation of the Fourth Amendment? Maybe we shouldn't have held it's a violation. I understand that argument. Is there any other area of Fourth Amendment law in which the violation of the Fourth Amendment is not followed by a suppression rule? Well, certainly. Let me give an example. Um, one of the circumstances that I indicated that the police, a manner in which the police must behave when reasonably executing a warrant is not to look in places where the item sought cannot be found. If the police were searching a house for stolen computer monitors, a large object, and as they were searching for them, they opened a desk drawer where the monitor could not be, and they shut it. And they found computer monitors in the home. The, this Court has never addressed the question that I'm aware of, but the law is uniform in the country that you would not suppress the computer monitors. Well, now you're talking about other cases in other courts. I looked through with my law clerks 
300 cases since weeks, not map, weeks. That's what we're talking about, 1914. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find in 300 cases one single Supreme Court case that did not suppress evidence where there was a Fourth Amendment violation with one exception. The exception is there are sets of cases where deterrence is really not a factor. For example, good faith. For example, uh, it isn't going into a criminal proceeding. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what I'd like you to do is to tell me if I missed some, which is certainly possible, or second, if you want us to change the rule and go back 300 years or 300 cases back before 1914, or are you going to tell us that deterrence doesn't play a role here or whatever you want? I want to put to you the state of the art as far as I can see. It would be my position that in all of those cases, there was a causal connection between the evidence found in the well, wrong. A causal case. connection, absolutely here. It is a but-for connection. Well, but, this but, person being in the room, and, and a child of two, would know that if you get into a room, as a result of your being in that room, you're likely to find evidence. So, it's both but-for, and it fits within the problem. Here we are. That's the same, by the way, as it is with Making a false oath to a magistrate. You make a false oath to a magistrate. That permits a magistrate to get into the house when the policeman gets in there with the warrant. It doesn't take the court long to suppress that, about a second. And, and, and how, how is this somehow different? Let me, let me try to give a couple of examples from different situations to make my point uh, that well, there is well, give some cases first. He's talking about actual I, cases. I mean, isn't it possible that if his law clerk overlooked Segura, he overlooked no, we read cases Segura. as well? Uh, we read Segura, which happens to be There was the unquestionably, was there not, a violation of the Fourth Amendment in Segura? That the, Your Honor is correct, and I am confident that the, when the officers returned with the search warrant, with the officers already inside, they did not knock and announce when they returned with the search warrant. He is not. Well, isn't that an example where there's a violation of the Fourth Amendment that is brought up, and yet suppression is not the for because of the habeas concerns of comedy that this court has? That's correct. It is also not suppressed. Important exception: the exception which comes from Silverthorne is when there is an independent chain of events such that it will be, not could be, not, but would be, in fact, discovered anyway, despite the unlawfulness. Silverthorne Holmes says, of course you don't keep it out then, because that's not going to impact deterrence. Now, that's Segura, that's Silverthorne, that's case after case. Of course I accept that. And if you can show that this case somehow fits within that chain, fine. And I, then I maybe appear I have my mind made up on this, but I'm open to change. Well, let, let me try a couple of examples that... <laughs> That I, that I hope might make the point. Uh, it, it, it is, and my, my belief is, it's, it's common in human experience that things can be accomplished either by command or by permit, permission when the manner of doing so, the manner in which they end up being accomplished is subject to criticism. Let me give a couple of quick examples. If when she was young I sent my daughter to her room, and that was rare, but if I sent her to her room and she stomped up the stairs and slammed the door, she would be in further difficulty, not because she carried out my command by going to her room, but because she stomped up the stairs. If a young athlete is told by his coach, catch the ball with two hands, and he catches it with one, he is admonished not because he caught the ball, but because he caught it with one hand. And if a football player taunts the opposing team as he crosses the goal line, he gets a penalty not because he crossed the goal line, but because he taunted the other team. These strictures are not prerequisites to the conduct. I do not tell my daughter, go to your room, but only if you don't stomp up the stairs. No, no, you don't tell the athlete. And I understand that point of your brief, and I'm glad that you brought it up. But I have never, I have never seen Fourth Amendment matters cut that finely. I have never seen the court say, I want to go back to the reason why this policeman is unlawfully in the room and then try to connect each piece of evidence with that reason. Rather, they ask, is he unreasonably and unconstitutionally in the room? So my concern about that, which I'd like you to address, is if we took that approach, I think we'd be doing it for the first time, and we'd let a kind of computer virus loose in the Fourth Amendment. I don't know what the implications of that are. I can't tell you what you're saying is illogical. It's not illogical. It's conceivable. But it strikes me as risky and unprecedented. Well, I, I think, as, as in the examples I gave, knock and announce works the same way. These are 
not prerequisites. They are rules of conduct. They are principles of behavior. It's not do this only if you behave in this manner. It's do this and behave in this manner while doing it. And if you don't behave in the manner we have prescribed, the question is what flows from that misbehavior, not from the achievement of the end. It seems to me that your example, it's uh, stomping up the stairs, is like failing to knock and announce. That's correct. And the, and, uh, the police are not illegally in the premises so of my daughter. So there be a deterrent for the stomp, stomping up the stairs. And you've got no deterrent for the knock and announce. Well, and part of, what, part of what I wanted to say also to Justice Breyer, and I think also works here, is it, it's, the suggestion seems to be that, knock, uh, that a Fourth Amendment violation, the question of whether one has occurred, and the question of whether or not the, to apply the exclusionary rule are one and the same. And, and this Court has never said that. To me, that would be a dramatic changing in, of the law of this Court. This Court has always said those are separate questions. Uh, and I think Petitioner's argument co- conflates the two. We first ask whether there has been a constitutional violation, and then we say, this Court has said, the premise for application of the exclusionary sanction is whether or not the challenged evidence is the product of the illegal government activity. So once we establish that there has been a constitutional error, the question becomes, is the challenged evidence the product of it? And just like the touchdown is not the product of the taunting, the entry into the premises is not the product of the failure to knock and announce, it's the product of a warrant which the judge issued commanding the police to enter. Isn't, isn't the problem that, in, in fact, it's the product of both? Uh, the warrant alone does not get the police officer uh, into, into the building. Uh, it, it is, in fact, the entry that gets the police officer into the building, the execution of the warrant. The judge has to do something. The police officer has to do something. Mm-hmm. And the question that I think we face when we say, uh, is the later search the product of the entry, is, is what you're, what, I, I think, a point that, that counsel on the other side was making. It's a pragmatic point. Where do we draw the line of causation? And his answer is, and I think the, the answer of the cases that Justice Breyer uh, was, was referring to, is this. We draw it in a way that will allow us to deter illegal police conduct. And if we engage in this slicing process uh, of causation that you talk about, there will be no deterrent for the violation of the no-knock rule. If instead we say, yeah, this is enough, the product, that we ought to deter, uh, that we ought to to, uh, respond to it in a way that will deter the no-knock, and therefore we find causation and we get deterrence. What is fallacious about that argument? There's nothing fallacious about the argument if one accepts that excluding the truth in in a criminal proceeding is a fair trade-off in that circumstance. We do that every single time we exclude a piece of evidence in every suppression case, don't we? But the Court has — Don't we? Yes, we do. But the Court has said because that's a dramatic thing to do, because it it has a high societal cost, it should only be done — when there is a causal connection, when the evidence is the product of the police wrongdoing. Thank you, Mr. I, I thank the Court. Mr. Salmons. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Suppression would not be an appropriate remedy in this context for two primary reasons. The first is that the knock-and-announce rule does not protect the individual's privacy interests in the underlying item seized, and instead, It seeks to limit discrete risks related to the execution of warrants, that property will be damaged, that officers will be mistaken for intruders, or that occupants will be caught in embarrassing situations. That makes the knock-and-announce rule similar to other Fourth Amendment requirements related to the manner of executing warrants. Well, what what do you say to Justice Breyer's argument that we haven't previously analyzed suppression by tracing or trying to trace the causal connection between a particular piece of evidence and a particular reason for the rule that was broken. What we have said in the past is, if the rule or the standard is violated and the search is therefore uh, unreasonable, the evidence doesn't come in. You're proposing a, a different causal analysis. You're proposing a causal analysis that requires the connection between a piece of evidence and the particular reason for one of these standards 
in every case in which suppression is, is requested. Number one, do you agree that, that that would be a departure, as Justice Breyer suggested? And number two, what would be the justification for that? It would not be a departure, Your Honor. In fact, it's common practice in the Fourth Amendment area. Um, this Court, for example, in New York versus Harris, looked to the purposes of the rule against uh, arrest in the home absent a warrant and to conclude that it wasn't appropriate to suppress a statement made at the station, even though it assumed that there was but-for causation. And this court in Cruz did a similar analysis. It's very common to look to the purposes served. It's common when you have a chain of causal connection to say it ends somewhere. It's common. And in Harris it ended once they left the home and now they're over in the station. But, but this isn't over in the station. This is in the home. You speak of interests, but this doesn't interest. What about Boyd? I mean, the most famous statement in Fourth Amendment history, to all invasions on the part of the government and its employees of the sanctity of a man's home and the privacies of life, it is not the breaking of his doors and the rummaging of his drawers that constitutes the essence of the offense, but it is the invasion of his indefeasible right of personal security personal liberty, and private property. Now, I thought 1886, that's what's governed these cases for about a hundred and far more, a century and a half or a quarter. And, and, and the, the, then suddenly you say, well, it's this interest of the one or the other one. I mean, doesn't that describe it? No, no, Your Honor. I mean, certainly that's the, that is the, one of the principles underlying the Fourth Amendment. But this Court has looked to the types of considerations I'm discussing, and I will give you some examples. Um, and we think, in fact, the knock-and-announce rule is very analogous to, exa- for example, to a claim of unnecessary property damage or to a claim uh, that the officers brought the media along when they should or that they used excessive force. There's no um, doubt in here that an invasion of the home is authorized by the warrant, right? That's correct. The interest we're talking about is not the sanctity of the drawers. It is 10 seconds that the officers should have waited additionally, according to the uh, to your brother. That's correct. The illegality I'm is sorry, that is correct. I, I thought that this warrant does not say you can enter the house uh, without knocking. I mean, I have a warrant. This warrant lets me search the house in daytime. I search it in nighttime. Is my search authorized? Well, I don't think that would be a warrantless search, or I don't think that would be a violation. That might be a concern about the manner of execution. But, but again, if I may. What happens with my example? I'm curious. That's not a rhetorical question. I have a warrant which says, search 1618 Fifth Street. I search 1518 Fifth Street. Was it a warrant, a warrant back search? No. Well, I don't have a warrant to search 1518. I don't have a warrant that allows me to come in in the middle of the night when it says day. And I don't have a warrant here that allows me to come in without knocking. So where's the law? I think the question in that case, Your Honor, would be about reasonable reliance on the warrant and whether it was a reasonable mistake. And if it wasn't, then it would be a warrantless search. And if I may just focus the Court on attention on the claim of unnecessary property damage, we think that's quite analogous here, in part because the typical, uh, in the typical case, a premature or unannounced entry will be a forcible entry. But whether the claim is that the officers entered a few moments prematurely, or that they unnecessarily used a battering ram on the door. In either case, the, 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 the violation doesn't relate to the privacy interests and the items to be seized and shouldn't result in suppression. And in addition to that... Well, it does relate to the privacy interest, and we've seen the explanation. One of the reasons for requiring the knock is that there <clears throat> is enough respect for a person's home, a person's privacy, to say the police should not barge in like an invading army. Well, that's certainly that is a respect for privacy. That, that, that certainly is true, Your Honor, but that, that, and that is not involved, a protection. And that is, that is the whole point of, of knock and announce, isn't it? No, Your Honor. The point of knock and announce is a more limited privacy. It's not related to the privacy of the items to be seized. That's separate. That's why it makes it like We're talking about the privacy of the individual in his home. And the reasonableness of the search depends upon the reasonableness of invading the individual's privacy in his home. Is that not the general rule? No, Your Honor. I think what what focuses in terms of suppression 
is whether the government has obtained an evidentiary advantage as a consequence of the illegality. Here the illegality was the failure to delay a few additional moments before And there will never be a suppression of, 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 uh, of evidence specified in a warrant when the warrant's no-knock component is violated. Well, I, I don't because we, we will say in every single time following your argument, uh, you will, we, we will say the, the, the violation had nothing to do with the authorization to seize the evidence. The violation simply had to do with, the, with the, the, the niceties and the risks involved in entering. So if we accept your argument, no-knock uh, is, is, is a dead doctrine. I don't, I don't think so, Your Honor, if I may try to explain. I think as a general matter with regard to physical evidence in the home that's within the scope of the search warrant that you're, you're probably right most of the time that evidence will come in. We think that there are probably at least two areas that might lead to suppression. Um, in these cases. One is the, the type of statements that the Chief Justice mentioned earlier, and another might be um, uh, what you might call proximity evidence, that um, the officers went in prematurely and as um, a result they saw a defendant. May I ask you this, this question? If you'd been the prosecutor in this case and you had knew that the evidence would be suppressed if there were a constitutional violation, would you have conceded that there was a constitutional violation in this case? Well, I, I, I don't think — I think there's a reasonable yes argument no. that could be I'm, — I'm tempting to answer that, Your Honor. I, I think there's a reasonable argument that could be made in this case that there wasn't a violation. I think it was probably so you a smart strategy. I can't, I can't second-guess the strategy here. To you would not it. have conceded. If you, if you thought there was a reasonable argument, you would not have conceded that there was a violation, would you? I, I think I probably would have argued in the alternative, Your Honor. I think that's probably the safest uh, — Can you tell me, what, what happens if there's a violation of the uh, daytime warrant uh, provision in, in, a, in a search warrant and it searches at night, do we suppress? I think generally no, Your Honor. Um, I are, think I, 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 would, I would. Are there cases on that? I, I, they're, they're, they're not in this court. Um, there may be in the Court of Appeals. I, I, I think the way that the court would analyze that would be, again, along the same lines. Now, certainly in jurisdictions that haven't adopted the rule that we're articulating here, the courts may suppress. But we think under the principles we're articulating that suppression probably would not be appropriate there. No, but But apparently you're saying we would not suppress because as long as the warrant specified the items to be seized and they didn't go beyond that, there was no causal connection between the fact that they broke in and disturbed people in the night when they were not authorized to and their ultimate uh, 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 obtaining of, of the evidence. Once again, it seems to me if we follow your, your reasoning, then the distinction between the nighttime and the daytime warrant is a dead letter. Well, I, again, we respectfully disagree with that. We think that um, there are two separate questions, what the Constitution requires and whether suppression is the appropriate remedy. The, always the Constitution those. requires a reasonable search. It is Hornbook law. Uh, that violating no-knock, <coughs> violating nighttime searches when only a daytime search is authorized uh, amounts to an unreasonable search. You're saying that's utterly irrelevant because there's no causal connection between that violation and the seizure of the particular items that the warrant, uh, the warrant specified. Your Honor, if I may, it's also Hornbook law now in this Court that you can't unnecessarily destroy property in executing the warrant or affecting the entry, and that you can't bring the media along. But, but this I, Court I'd in like both rooms like I'd like to get your position. I, I think Justice Souter is correct that under the theory you're arguing to us here, uh, the violation of the daytime warrant rule is not ground for suppressing evidence. So we can have nighttime searches with no suppression remedy. Well, I, I think that's probably the position that we would take. I think the way the Court would analyze that, as it has done in these other cases, it would look to two factors. One, what are the purposes served by the Fourth Amendment rule that's violated and how well will those purposes fit with the remedy of suppression? And two, whether the government obtained any evidentiary advantage as a result of the violation. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Salmon. Mr. Moran, you have three minutes remaining. You think, there, you think there was a violation of the knock-and-announce rule in this case, correct? I do, Your Honor. Uh, the warrant was never actually made part of the record, but my understanding from the record we have uh, was that only drugs uh, — it was only knowledge of drugs. The, the warrant authorized a search for guns because Officer Good told the magistrate that in his experience, guns were often associated with drugs. But they had no particularized information about any guns on the premises. They only had particularized information about drugs on the premises. The issue here about causation goes back, I think, to the common law. And as Justice Breyer articulated, when an officer is illegally in the home, uh, that causes his seizure of goods 
or his arrest of people in the home to be illegal. If I can go all the way back to 1831, Chief Justice Shaw of the Massachusetts Supreme Court said, the rule is well established, this is 1831, it was well established, that where an authority given by law is exceeded, the party loses the benefit of his justification and the law holds him a trespasser ab initio, although to a certain extent he followed the authority given. The law will operate to defeat all acts thus done under color of lawful authority when exceeded, and a fortiori will it operate prospectively to prevent the acquisition of any lawful right by the excess and abuse of an authority given for useful and beneficial purposes. So you draw a distinction between two cases. If they illegally entered and they suddenly said, ah, we we waited four seconds, it was supposed to be 15, they say, never mind, they go back out, there's another knock, they wait 15, they come in, then it's all right. Correct? It might be. Okay. But you're saying it's a world of difference if when they go in and enter and they say, oh, we should have waited 10 more seconds, we're the police, we're here to execute a search warrant, let's count to 10, then all of a sudden it's invalid from there on. Those are the two different cases in your mind. That's right, because a reasonable search and seizure, as this Court held in Wilson, requires a lawful entry. Eight justices agreed that a lawful entry is the indispensable predicate of a reasonable search in Kerr versus California. These are not disconnected. It is not in. Uh, the, the prosecution's claim here, the, the respondent's claim, would eliminate all manner of entry arguments from the exclusionary rule, nighttime search, uh, use of excessive force, blowing up the building to get in, knocking a wall off the building wouldn't matter. They were in, they're in, they have a warrant, everything is fine once they're in. It simply wouldn't matter for exclusionary purposes. Um, in Harris, I want to stress again in Harris that this Court never questioned the fact that the evidence found inside the home had to be suppressed. And that's all we're asking for here, the evidence in the home. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.